The TNT Shop has great gift ideas for your furry family member. And we don't mean your Aunt Dolores. You stink! The TNT Shop has it all at tntradio.live. Matt Arrett and Connecting the Dots on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. All right, welcome to Connecting the Dots on TNT Radio. I'm your host, Matt Arid, and I'm going to be having a fabulous series of guests today. Um, we have Joaquin Flores speaking, out, speaking to us from Belgrade. We're going to have Michel Trusadovsky, uh, the founder of Global Research, will be speaking to us from near Montreal, Canada, somewhat close to where I live, and, uh, and a good friend of mine, uh, Brady Fuchs, war hamster, who's going to go into some deep dives of political geopolitical history with a focus on uh, United Fruit CIA intelligence manipulations and a lot more. So this is going to be a fun series of chats today. And I'm very, very happy to have our regular guest, my good friend, Joaquin Flores, joining us. Joaquin, how are you today? I'm doing fantastic, man. Thank you for having me once again. For those who are only listening, you are deprived of a very dapper-looking Joaquin right now wearing a flashy suit with a baby grand piano behind him, and it, it's very, very cultured Joaquin, and I think that that's a really great image that you're projecting because we need, we're living in a bit of a cultured dark age right now, as, as far as I could see it, and you could really get a, a taste of that by, uh, I think, just appreciating some of the subtleties of, and the ironies of uh, what happened just a couple of days ago when we had an interview that I think somehow uh, there's been about 200 million people or so who have watched the Tucker Carlson Putin interview. Um, and it really just showcased the clash of two different um, paradigms where we have Tucker obviously representing some desire for by, by some faction within an influential component of the Western elite looking for some form of um, perhaps an off ramp. Perhaps they could see that the game is not working out as planned. And, and so you have that represented where we have people like Annalena Baerbach and Justin Trudeau and senile Biden, um, who are the, the voice of the people representing just the, the, the most disappointing mediocrity and cultural decay that, I, that you could possibly imagine. And then you have somebody who's a civilized human being representing real culture, speaking with no teleprompter, no notes, no pre-recorded messages, just pure uh, human being um, speaking for the public to see for the first time. So I'd like to really just jump into our conversation with your take um, on what did you what do you think was the biggest takeaway from that whole that whole process of that two hour interview? Yeah, so you, you're looking at this and you have 120 something minutes, like you said, two hours. And uh, Tucker Carlson uh, begins by asking effectively just a direct question, you know, you know, why on, on February on in February 2022 did, did Russia begin what it calls its special military operation? And instead of saying something that you would think re would relate immediately maybe to uh, uh, the failure of missile treaties or the encroachment of NATO, you know, we're blasted into the ninth century AD, and then we proceed to get a salvo of 1200 years of history um, for by and large what takes, you know, I would say maybe 40 minutes, you know, with of that interview. And it's a very delicate telling of the history of a single people, a single people um, who begin their, their, their civilization in Kiev, of Russian people in Kiev. And how through different periods of history, the, the Mongol incursions, uh, the development and growth of, of, of a European drift of the uh, Lithuanian uh, Russian uh, prin principality and later the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth and the Polonization of these Russian people to become Ukrainians. 
and how um, this represents this kind of ebb and flow uh, over many, many centuries and in kind of describing uh, the kind of uh, different cycles of Russian civilization and how uh, what is really going on in Ukraine uh, represents a continuation of something that was seen uh, as, you know, in recent history, relatively in the 19th century with the Austrian um, a military officer staff looking at the Ukrainians as a as this group that they could build an identity into calling them Ukrainians and to use them as like a battering ram into Russia. And we would see that uh, multiple times in history. We would see that in World War II. We would see that again recently uh, in 2014 as well, when the ethnic cleansing campaign of the Kiev government really began in full force against their own people, uh, Ukrainian citizens of Russian descent throughout much of the easternmost regions of former Ukraine. So I think that the main point of this is, is look, this is this is not about just missile treaties. This is not just about something that we could agree, right? Because now we have a conflict where hundreds and hundreds, and you know, some people estimate as, as many as 500,000 or more Ukrainians have been killed, hundreds of thousands injured. Um, no doubt, no shortage of Russian casualties as well, although many experts say as, as little as a tenth, as much as a fifth of the number of casualties. Nevertheless, both sides have taken large numbers of losses for ukraine these are unsustainable and yet so this is something that is is not a small matter this is not something that a, you know some diplomacy could fix this is not something that just goes back five years or 20 years or to the collapse of the soviet union we're really looking at the ebb and flow of history and only something of that depth of, of a thousand years of history could justify a military operation where yes Perhaps altogether on both sides taken together, like a million soldiers will have died, maybe by the end of this conflict. So this is not something that's just a matter, again, of diplomacy, of a geopolitical misunderstanding. This is not something where we can just have Putin call up Biden, as was suggested by Tucker Carlson. And I thought respectfully enough, but raised in that way. And it's like, no, this has already gone kinetic, my friend. Like we, we are making the solution. And um, I think that it was very important. There was also some subtle things along the way that were dropped, like, for example, in talking about the 17th century war that Russia fought with Poland, um, very nonchalantly, uh, uh, Putin said, so that war continued for 13 years and then blah, 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 blah. And you're like, wow, so the Russians have no problem of, of you know, going over a dozen years in war. And I thought that was a very, you know, subtle flex about mm. what, you know, what Russia is looking at right now. They're saying... You know, I think that uh, you, we can do this for another dozen years if you guys are as foolish to continue. So I think that this was a part of the message. And so I've heard other analysts and experts talk about how perhaps this should have been more oriented towards, you know, the mass you know, public of the West. Again, like you said, 200 million people have seen this by now. And just to compare by the numbers, Matt, we're talking about MSM, MSNBC, Rachel Maddow, these different talking head shows that might get at most two or three hundred thousand viewers on an episode. So the single Tucker Carlson episode on on X and also on his website has garnered, you know, almost every single if it was only Americans watching it, you would have every single adult American has now seen this. So this is yeah. really something that as, a, as a cultural event that we must kind of stand back and appreciate for what it is. 
Yeah, I, I really like what you just said, because I, I at first as well felt a little bit of agitation, a little bit like thinking as, as he was going into this broad expanse of history that oh, you're missing an opportunity to be punchy. And, you know, a lot of Westerners are going to hear you probably for the first time as far as like saying a whole thought without having been like cut out of context by some uh, CIA operative uh, masquerading as a news a news anchor. Um, but then I, I sat back and I thought about it and, and like you, I was like, wait a minute, this is brilliant. He's organizing the entire paradigm of how to think about everything regarding his audience. And do you think his audience was in his mind, was he just speaking primarily to, um, the American audience? Or do you think he was also speaking to a lot of people in like Eastern Europe who otherwise yeah, are being polarized by Yeah. Very good question. I, you know, I, and I, I had similar thoughts, like certainly there must be Ukrainians and Poles that are hearing this. Certainly, no doubt this is a subject in media. In fact, that's a fact. You can look all across the newspapers in the last few days in Latvia, Lithuania, Poland, Romania, Bulgaria, Serbia, Ukraine, and they are talking about this interview. So absolutely, this is not a guess. This is absolutely part of the audience, right? We can establish that as a fact. Also, um, I heard um, there was a, there's a very good uh, analyst um, uh, local to Serbia. Uh, we call him the Nebulator, and he's got a great Telegram channel. And uh, he he suggested that this is also uh, Putin um, telegraphing a message to the Western elites, uh, not just the the you know American people at large, but that the elites within you know transatlantic uh, power centers um, and. Um, Funny that you said about Tucker, CIA operative, you know, uh, Putin intimated a number of times, like, we know your story, dude. And uh, and and it kind of the kind of the, the culmination of that is when Tucker asks Putin, like, so who blew up Nord Stream? And he goes, you did. And it's like, well, obviously not Tucker, but yeah, the CIA did. So, it, you know, and Tucker responded. He's like, well, actually, I, I, I wasn't at work that day. And uh so it was a very, very funny dialogue. And it made me think yeah. of Anderson Cooper. And it made me think of how the CIA recruits because they reach out to you. You don't reach out to them. And uh, it's, it would be almost unbelievable at this point if Tucker Carlson wasn't some type of managed asset that he was aware of being, making him an agent. So, um, you know, it, it, it raises many possibilities. And, and I have, of course, mixed feelings about uh, Tucker Carlson, have mixed feelings about uh x as a platform and really what the you know the the u.s establishment is trying to do and i really think you're onto something and i really think it's a great way to phrase the question like are is there a section or faction of the u.s elites that are looking for an off-ramp that are looking maybe even at some point to plug into bricks i mean there, there's many opportunities if they can disentangle from atlanticism from the forever wars that allows them to kind of join the civilization the symphony of humanity that we see in multipolarity do you think that that requires that they that they turn Russia or they that they try to turn Russia and other BRICS members against China? Uh, I, I got that sense when I when I heard Tucker's approach or his sharing of his concerns, saying that you know well, the BRICS seems like uh, like aren't aren't we in danger of changing or replacing one more sympathetic empire? Because he admits that the U.S. has been acting like an empire. He's at least he's honest enough right. to do that, and right. that we have been encroaching NATO wise around Russia, but. Are, are we not at risk and is not, are you not afraid and the other BRICS nations afraid of uh, China being a more violent empire replacing the United States in a more uh, aggressive fashion? And what did you think of of his uh, intention yeah. or thinking behind that question? You know, a number, response? Yeah, a number of times. This is like fantastic question because it's like a number of times Putin 
uh, answered the question that he should have been asked and not the question that he was asked. And this was another incident where where Tucker Carlson said something like, um, you know, China is a, is a really huge power. Uh, why is the why is the U.S. elite? Why are they afraid of Russia? And uh, and why are they not afraid of China? And Putin says, very good question. Yes, you're right. They are very much afraid of China. And the reason they're afraid of China is blah, 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 blah. And so it's like, huh, okay, well, that's, you know, the, the question, I guess, that, you know, Tucker should have, uh, you know, answered or asked. Um, and, of course, another thing, a part of that was that Putin had to remind him, it's like, you know, you know, you're thousands of miles away. And, and this kind of issue with China might even be like elective warfare for you. Uh, you know, we've been we've been bordering China for hundreds and hundreds, you know, probably 400 years. Uh, we've had a border with with Russia, with the with China. And he says, you know, and and neighbors are like close family, like you don't choose them. You, you know, you, you have to decide like to work with them or it could be your mutual demise. And uh, so this is a, a, a much different responsibility in, in their relations with China. Um, but there was interesting part like kind of earlier on uh, before they got into China, where they were actually talking about the history of how at certain point um, Putin asked Bill Clinton, like, hey, Bill, what do, would you think about, you know, Russia joining NATO? And right. Bill Clinton said, interesting idea. I think we could go for that. And then later, uh, the deep state, as they might call them, like, let him know, like, no, this is not on the agenda at all, my friend. Like, you can't say yes. And Clinton honestly informed him later, like, that's not on the agenda for today or anytime soon. But as that was happening, the way that Putin was talking about, like, a shared security apparatus or something like this to deal with the emergent threats in the world, you can kind of see this little, like, thing in Tucker's eye that he's thinking, like, oh, so is that an opening that China might have been that threat that, that Russia and the West could have joined up with, et cetera? And I think that this is actually a total misframing on the part of Tucker and really kind of fails to understand different theories about how civilizations actually work and what is the real source of war. So we've been kind of dealing with this like British sense, really driven by a lot of 19th century narratives and a lot of ways that British historians and Smithsonian Institute and Royal Academy have looked at wars over the past several millennia, going back, let's say, to the uh, 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 Thucydides and the uh, Peloponnesian Wars and going through to the Roman period and uh, Roman uh, civil wars, collapse of the Roman Empire. All of this is seen through this lens of empire as being a, a zero-sum game, uh, that empire is domination, that, that what strong uh, geopolitical entities do is dominate in ways that are that are you know either or zero sum game win lose where you have a dominating people and a subject people and and uh, and this is not if you look at for example at the longer history of China uh, and how they've engaged in the world I mean, there have been times when they decided we don't even want to engage in the world let's burn down the whole fleet because we see an imbalance mm. of power happening within our society like you know even though we can look at in a, in a very you know historical way, or we can look and appreciate how there have been uh, perhaps um, you know uh, let's say uh, historical artifacts or pottery or goods that had you know through trade uh, with China and East Africa you know leaves this beautiful historical record and shows that these people were here. Um, this may have been leading toward disbalances in power. 
in in Chinese in the Chinese dynasty at the time, uh, where the uh, mercantile and trading elites had more power than the kind of land-based uh, state-building uh, elites that have a direct concern over the populations, as opposed to profit margins. Right. I never thought so of it China that way. That, that's an interesting. It's. An, I just want to just. T- just toss in here yeah. very quickly that that's an interesting hypothesis that I hadn't really contemplated because I was always bothering me like why did China burn down in the in the 14 whatever 1430s their massive fleet that had galleons three four five times the size of anything Europe could do stretching all over the world maybe to the Americas even and it was just such an incredible feat that they were able to do that and I couldn't and I still don't have a 100% of an answer but you just introduced right. a, a very interesting hypothesis that I never contemplated before that's interesting. So I just wanted to thank you for that, but keep it going. <laughs> yeah. So so that's a possibility, right? And, uh, yeah. and kind of looking at today and uh, China's sea export as opposed to, and maybe not always as opposed to, but really needs to be surpassed by the development of road and rail and, mm-hmm. and BRI or One Belt, One Road. And um, so you can see that um, that the Chinese method is not about uh, all or nothing and that their general position is one of compromise and cooperation and they i think they have shown that and and this is something which and this is this transcends you know unipolarity versus you know bipolar versus multipolar because um western elites as well at a, not in their propaganda not in their rhetoric but really at the level of think tanks and academia they recognize that China plays this role. That's why they talk about bringing China in and they keep trying to set China up to put words in his mouth about uh, you know, what a peace plan might look like. And China, of course, has to like clarify their position after there's gonna be something, I think, where it's happening uh, in Switzerland and they're gonna have a new, uh, you know, basically continue on this uh, this Lugano format that they also had in, they had you know part two or part three in England recently. And now they're going to bring it over to Switzerland. And this is maybe going to be the second or third time that China is kind of brought in to participate in a conversation. And uh, they're going to have to be doing a lot of uh, public relations at the same time from their foreign ministry, because no doubt uh, the Swiss, the British, the Ukrainians are going to be uh, kind of uh, mis- mischaracterizing the point of what China's position is. Yeah. Yeah. I find, I find it. I find it hilarious that the West at this point is so addicted to their perception management that they've started thinking that that is what is reality. And so they they keep on imposing these narratives onto China, try to interpret or at least um, not even interpret, but impose, like you just said, what China thinks onto China, which obviously the Chinese are then trying to be polite and having to deal with this like imposition, this grafting onto them of these opinions about them. <laughs> and then they have to like sort of take it, move it and, and, and try to like make something useful out of this mess. <laughs> but that being said, let's, yeah, let's take no, a quick break for uh, for some commercials and then we're going to come back and keep this going. TNT's Misty Winston. She says, how is anyone still talking about October 7th? What Israel has done since October 7th is many times worse than what happened on that day by any conceivable metric. The only way to feel otherwise is to believe Israeli lives are worth many times more than Palestinian lives. How is Israeli suffering still being centered over vastly less significant acts of violence three months ago, while exponentially worse violence and suffering is being inflicted by Israelis right this very moment? If your nation is attacked and you respond to that attack by immediately murdering thousands of children with incredible savagery, then you forfeit any right to expect anyone to give a shit that your nation was attacked. 
Israel responded to the Hamas attack by doing something much, much worse than anything Hamas has ever done, and in doing so, completely delegitimizing itself as a state and completely validating everything the Palestinian resistance has been saying about the state of Israel since day one. Misty Winston on today's News Talk TNT. The Light is Britain's far-right conspiracy theory paper spreading hate and vicious lies. No, that's what the BBC say. The Light is the only national newspaper bringing you the real news and informed opinion on what's really going on today. You can subscribe, order copies, submit articles, and read back issues on our website, thelightpaper.co.uk, and see for yourself why the establishment are so worried about the uncensored truth getting out to people every month. The Light Paper. Not for right, just right so far. thelightpaper.co.uk it's time to switch on today's news talk radio. Very entertaining. Yeah. TNT. All right, we're back for the second segment of the first hour on TNT Radio's Connecting the Dots. Um, we're just continuing our uh, our discussion, uh, dissecting some of the the dynamics both within the that were unveiled within the the Tucker Putin interview that I would hope everybody at this point has watched if you haven't been living under a rock. As well as some of the dynamics surrounding it, the implicit, um, what wasn't stated but was present in the dialogue, shaping um, the thinking, how this even happened. And we were discussing a little bit of the issue of the different type of thinking about self-interest that we see, uh, that we saw explicitly developed very eloquently by Putin and what he represents when he said, my good friend Xi Jinping and even chastised uh, Tucker in the West for destroying their best chance of having some economic real self-interest met some benefit by working with Russia, with China on win-win cooperation, points of mutual uh, benefit. Um, Do you think that Putin was being a little bit um, maybe naive in trying to make his case or or appeal to something sane in the West? Or do you think there is something sane there that, that could be activated that Putin was interfacing with that could see maybe uh, a change in policy regarding uh, something more pro-BRICS, pro-multipolar alliance that could be brought online when he's speaking to uh, to Tucker? As you so uh, poignantly spoke about at the top of the hour, um, it was not a cheap interview. It was not an interview Mm -hmm. with uh, hot takes and cheap talking points and fast edits and three-minute answers and you know, we'll be right back after these messages and all this stuff. It was a very, very long form. And it was a, it, this is a serious matter. War, right? Destruction, death, right? These are real serious, the most serious things that we could possibly talk about in the arena of international relations. I mean, it, it is like the, uh, the, uh, the analogy to, to medicine is, is something like a, a pandemic. So this is something that really requires a broad debate and we need as much speech as possible. And what Russia was doing wasn't just giving answers, but they were showing their approach to answers. They were actually showing an aspect of their culture that that we don't have short, simple, uh, you know, thought terminating one liners to describe, you know, matters of, of, you know, great historical importance like war. Where, where people will no doubt die. And so one of the things that we have to also remember when Putin was talking about going, you know, the reasons for the war, like just think about how from an American or British imperial perspective, meaning in the sense of the cabal in the US or the, or the DC permanent establishment and the CIA and how 
well, how they would have done something like this. They would have no doubt blown up, you know, something in the U.S. as a false flag to justify a war. And think about how Russia could have, you know, blown up the, you know, uh, the, you know, the Catherine the Great Museum or the, the Armitage Museum, or they could have blown up some great historical or, or financial or some interest, but of a huge uh, aesthetic, a huge kind of performative thing to, to then roll right into Ukraine. But they didn't do that. And they haven't done these kind of stunts. And they're trying to show that there's a different way, like that. Think about 9-11 and think about how that tore this, you know, super valuable fabric that that connects people to government. And think about this really irreparable rift. And we talk about short-sighted thinking of the Western intelligence institutions. And, you know, did they think they weren't that cat wasn't going to get out of the bag? Did they think it was not going to sow, you know, generations of dissent and distrust? Like many of us today, you know, were really pushed into looking at what's going on because of 9-11. And the 9-11, as we know, justified the, the, you know, the ongoing decades-long wars and occupation in multiple Middle East countries. And Russia didn't do this. Russia didn't have a 9-11 to justify going into Ukraine. They actually explained things the way that they actually see it. And that type of transparency and that type of attempt in a long-form exposition that requires an attention span is also saying like we need to return to a world that has attention spans so it was very profound in, in many ways yes yeah absolutely and I, I think just reframing it properly as as uh being much more of a of a civil war than it is about some form of like an invasion or a war between two separate states very important that he did that i i'm just i'm i'm still just taking it in a little bit and having the residents come in whereas you know the the, the yeah. idea even of, of ukraine itself as Putin pointed out, the word comes from borderlands, those who protect borderlands originally. And the 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 language itself is something which derives from and this might piss some people off, but it derives from Russian. It's uh, it, it's a common people with a common faith, a common Christianity, a common uh, way of looking at things in so many levels with a common history, seeing people like Vladimir the Great as their their sort of founding father. Both people see the same have the same origin story. So, of course, it, of course. <laughs> and we're often just trained to look at a map in some like crystallized uh, like that's the way this map has always been. And we don't we, we've lost the ability to see things process oriented. Like, how did these borders come into being? And if somebody were to apply this right. to the United States, I was wondering, like, how would how would somebody in the U.S. justify why Hawaii or Puerto Rico is part of the United States. How would you, right. you know, or California or, or New Mexico? I mean, yeah, my yeah. God. Right. Right. <laughs> right. That's a good point too. Yeah. Something as close to home as California and New Mexico. Right. <laughs> um, right. right. No, so, yeah. And when, when, you're, when you're talking about this, hmm? Hmm? no, go ahead. No, feel free, please. Oh yes. Well, so, so yeah, in this interview, yeah, the way that they developed this, this line of thought in the interview, um, and and looking at this question of how um, Russia has had been trying to create compromise and trying to tolerate as much as they can. And um, people who um, are ethnologists and cultural studies about Slavic and, and Russian civilization, there's a general consensus that as a cultural type that they take, that they tolerate and tolerate and tolerate 
right, within the limits and beyond limits that we might associate with typical Western cultural norms uh, from a geopolitical perspective and even from a daily perspective of life and work that um, that this cultural sphere that they take and take and take and tolerate. And when they start to get to the limit, they will they will announce their red line. But mm -hmm. and that red line is not rhetorical. This is not a Biden red line or an Obama red line. Like these are real red lines from a country with plus 140, 150 million people and 6,000 something nuclear weapons. And one of the largest, most powerful militaries and advanced we can see now in the world. So it's, it's almost, and I dare say insane that the Biden administration, whatever that really means, you know, thought that they could push Russia into that position as if they weren't going to use the things and use the assets that they have. Thank God, not nuclear. And hopefully we don't have that type of provocation, Matt. But I'm, I'm looking at from the point of view of the nihilism in the West and the, the separation anxiety that they're having with regard to letting go of this empire. And I think that also speaks to the relatively slow pace that Russia has taken this campaign and to kind of not trigger um, the, the sort of things that might be taken in West, you know, like a blitzkrieg or something like that might tr have triggered Western elites into a more insane action than we've seen so far. And while it's always important to criticize and to deconstruct and analyze and problematize what we have, we should also appreciate that we're all still here right now. And uh, and that's not guaranteed, especially the way the Biden administration did not heed the, re the red lines iterated uh, very clearly by the Russian side um, several years ago. So and so here we are now in February. Yeah, it's so unnecessary, right? Like, and I I, I got that as well from Putin uh, in 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 his address and in, in his many addresses over the over the years. But it really came out in this interview very clearly that none of this is necessary. Ukraine could be integral. It could have Donbass. It could have Crimea right now, right now. If they if they if you simply didn't do what you did, and and I mean it started. I mean even before the 2014. Uh, coup overseen by the CIA. It, 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 you could see it with uh, even George Bush, the stooge, being induced, who he liked, coming out saying, yeah, Ukraine and Georgia should be part of NATO back in 2008. And even that, like right there, or even the go earlier, right, to the Soros-funded uh, Orange Revolution number one. Um, it's like none of this was necessary. We could be living in cooperation and brotherhood. It's uh, the 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 insanity baffles the imagination. How how incompetent? How do you think that um, that at this point? Um, well, I mean, obviously, we're we're hopeful that there is a future. Uh, <laughs> but um, right now, look on the issue of Ukraine. Zeluzhny's out. Um, this right. other guy's Sirsky. in. I forgot his. Yeah, seriously. Yeah, um, Sirsky's a weird character. He's like Russian trained. His family's in Russia. His parent, his dad is, is high level in the Russian military or is a retiree, but was quite, in, quite a Russian patriot. Now this guy's being brought in to replace Zeluzhny. Is that even a, is that a sign that there is like some motion towards a change in policy or is, the, is he just representing more, if not a more aggressive form of the, the same, you know, pro neo-Nazi fascist nationalism? Yeah, this is a very good question. And I've seen some, you know, very good analysts out there. My colleagues have very different opinions about this. We saw a piece from Seymour Hirsch recently that thought that maybe this change, that maybe uh, that Zeluzhny might have been interested in suing for peace, uh, meaning that Sierski would be like the, the war candidate as an appointment. 
um, you know, that is possible. Um, certainly, uh, Russian, you know, Russian information war has been in a very, I would say, half serious way trolling uh, the Kiev junta and the West by pointing out that, you know, Sirsky is actually the one with, you know, connections in Russia because his father, like you said, high ranking uh, uh, Soviet and Russian military uh, just a few years ago. Uh, Sirsky's father was marching uh, with uh, with their with his father, who had died in the Great Patriotic War. So Sirsky's grandfather had died in the Great Patriotic War, and Sirsky's father is there holding the the picture in you know in the Immortal Brigade, which is part of the uh, commemoration of the of the, what they call the Great Patriotic War, World War II, where citizens are encouraged in a great march every year to hold pictures of their loved ones who fought or died in that war. And uh, you have it's like a million person procession, you see, and uh, this immortal regiment. And uh, so these are things that Sirsky's family participated in, in Russia. And also uh, Sirsky has, uh, if I'm not mistaken, either a son or a brother that lives in Oceania, either New Zealand, I think Australia, who has said that his father Sirsky or his might be brother. I, I don't want to get this wrong, but he has a close relative, either son or brother, has said that that Sierski is a bastard, that he's a real mean, as a bad human being. So I don't know what you know to what extent how all that kind of fits in, but that's information is out there right now, Matt. And mm -hmm. uh, I, I would say that you know Seymour Hirsch is, is a is a is a comp is a very competent journalist. I don't know to what extent. His gaming out of the different scenarios is at the level of, of more rigorous geopolitical security studies analysis in terms of contingency planning and whatnot. But it is, you know, food for thought that, you know, maybe Zeluzhny was looking for a ceasefire. Uh, maybe Sirsky is the one that is saying, I'm willing to work not with the army that we wish we had, but with the army that we have. Um, mm. One thing we do know um, is that Zeluzhny uh, and uh, and others around him um, had communicated and it was actually mirrored or or echoed um, by a Zeluzhny opponent, uh, David Arachnia, who's actually part of uh, Zelensky's inner circle from, from uh, his uh, 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 Servant of the People faction. And Arachnia was saying uh, basically that the thing that is... Um, problem is that Zelensky has this piece of paper on legislation on his desk that as of today even he's still not signed um, which would be the mass mobilization of Ukrainians from the age of 18 upwards um, they as and I think this is very telling about the stability of their campaign and so others saying that they could be on the last legs might have a point there because what they've done in Ukraine and the reason that the average age of the front soldier or the soldier in the army now is 45 or 46 is not because they burned through the youth, but from the very beginning, they never uh, conscripted or pushed into uh, the, 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 the military people that were under 26. And you have to ask, well, why is that? And it's like, oh, because maybe because this would be a, a, a huge pushback from parents or maybe because ukrainian youth who, who who are on you know facebook instagram TikTok, telegram they're you know internet savvy just like russian youth are that you know that they are the ones seeing how these uh drones and new uh precision 
uh, weapons are able to basically eliminate them. It has nothing to do with their scale, nothing to do. It's just pure luck, chance, and their odds are bad. And so mm. young people get this. Young people kind of have more resources. They might have more friends in different countries. They don't have right. family in the country. It's easier for them to escape, to protest. They have less to lose. Um, whereas many of the soldiers, like we said, average age 46, most of them are fathers, married, etc., tying them to Ukraine. So it's a very interesting equation about if Zelensky were to sign that, right, and if that is what Sierski is looking for, right, and I don't think that we're talking, by the way, about a renewed counteroffensive, but about trying to take some monies which still have not materialized. Mind you, this $50 billion pledge from the EU follows the model of EU pledges which have still not yet materialized. So this is not the same thing as trying to get 60 billion from the US. These are long-term pledges that are going to extend over a four-year period. And when those start materializing is anyone's guess. So this is not money in the bank today. And so what they're trying to look at is, can we create a line of defenses? Can we kind of imitate some of the strategies that the Russians did when they built that three, four echelon deep line throughout Zaporozhye and Kherson regions? when they so massively stopped that so-called Ukrainian counteroffensive, which after four or five days, they had lost ten, so many tens of thousands of, of, of assets and people combined that they already knew within the first week that it had failed. And it took mainstream media two or three months to catch up with that fact, which is startling and horrifying by itself, mind you, given how bloody this war could wind up if Ukraine is unable to get to the negotiating table. And so it seems that maybe Sierski might be just as one hypothetical, right, is that Sierski might be the one being put in charge of trying to create echelon lines of defense meant, meant to slow down um, Russian activity, a Russian advance. But that doesn't really seem to be Russia's approach, though. They don't seem to be looking to advance. They seem to be playing the fact that Ukraine's reality as you were talking about this kind of hyper reality of believing, you know, living within your own propaganda bubble, where, at, where Ukraine's justification for saying that they're still in the game is that even though the front soldier in a trench has a bit about a average of 72 hour lifespan in the places where activity is happening, that they can keep putting people there to replace that. So the Russians don't really need to push the line forward in order to break the back of the Ukrainian military, Matt. And this yeah. has to do with complex systems and the basic concept of the straw that broke the camel's back. Ultimately, yes. there's going to be a one Ukrainian soldier that dies, that you can kind of reduce it to that one guy who dies in the same place that Russia has been shelling over and over for the past two years that starts a chain of events where they really actually can't get another guy to replace him. And all that the Ukrainians can do at that point is sue for peace, engage with the CIA in some massive false flag somewhere else in the world, maybe terrorism within Russia, maybe terrorism within the United States to justify the U.S. getting involved in a very crazy, stupid and serious way. But yeah. in the first scenario, which I think Russia thinks is, is hoping for, um, you're going to see uh, Ukraine have to sue for peace, even without very much change on the battle map in the way that you think of lines changing. So, yep. you know, what Sierski might be charged with then is trying to basically make it look good.
And I think that's something that Zaluzhny was not interested in doing at a fundamental level as a professional. Yeah, that's an interesting analysis. I do appreciate that. And uh, yeah, on, on top of that, I mean, the 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 very the, the the very approach that Putin has taken regarding as well, the like diffusing the hysterics of those who still keep on protesting or asserting that Russia wishes to take over Europe and then take over the world by simply saying, look, at the end of the day, um, not only do we not want a big chunk of Ukraine, we I mean, but we're also open to, you know, we're open to certain historical forces bringing back a conversation regarding Hungary or Poland's claim to certain areas that are today called Ukraine, which have a lot of Hungarians or, or Polish uh, people with a certain different identity. And, you know, so, I mean, I, I, th- this whole approach um, is, I think, a really good paradigm buster for many people, again, who I know and you know that Putin has said this sort of thing and doesn't want to take over the world. Um, there's no evidence of that. It's kind of like Rancor. A computer anal- analyst from the from the Cold War days coming at it again, but it's nice that finally, for the first time, so many mi- more hundreds of millions of people could access his line of reasoning and and just think for themselves about well, what does Russia really want? Um, we're gonna continue this with Walking Flores after a short commercial break. This is TNT Radio Live. Deweaponizing weather with reality and perspective. According to people, the Earth's temperature, and I say people because. I don't really consider the people saying this actual scientists. They may have degrees, but since they're using temperature as a metric for climate, they don't know what they're talking about. But according to them, this has been the hottest year on record, 2023. Now, that's interesting because the world population is going over 8 billion. In fact, they're close to 70 million new people on the planet than there were back in 2022. Or put it this way, there are 70 million more. Now, I can't figure out if things are so bad, how come the population continues to increase? I mean, aren't we in a hellhole right now? Now, I realize most of you don't have degrees in meteorology, and that's fine. What we were taught at Penn State, back when Penn State used to not be a climate indoctrination school, well, maybe they're not now that Michael Mann has left and gone to the University of Pennsylvania. But we were taught that temperature is a very poor metric for climate. Wet bulb temperatures are a much better metric because, after all, water vapor is very important, right? So if you know how much energy is in the air and you know that a lot better with a wet bulb temperature, then you get a better look at it. See, it could be hotter, but if it's drier, there's no real change in the amount of energy in the air. Better than that, though, is saturation mixing ratios. Now, this really quantifies the water vapor. So let me ask you a question. If you want to track down the source of what warming is, would you use something that doesn't correlate at all to the temperature, CO2? Or would you use something that has a direct correlation to the temperature, which is water vapor? This is TNT Climate and Weather Watchdog, meteorologist Joe Bastardi, asking you to enjoy the weather. It's the only weather you've got. Need a ride? Yeah! Driving with kids is a big responsibility. Hop in and buckle up! So don't sweat the small stuff. You got paint all over our paper! Get the big stuff right instead. What does that mean? Like making sure your kids are in the correct car seat and buckled up for safer travel. That deserves a wiggly wiggly wig! To make sure your child is in the right seat for their age and size, visit NHTSA.gov slash the right seat. Yeah. 
This is Connecting the Dots with Matt Arrett on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. All right, welcome back to the third segment of the first hour on Connecting the Dots, where I am pleased to be joined by Joaquin Flores of New Resistance on Telegram. Um, Joaquin has been just going through, we've been talking about uh, the whole discussion between Tucker and Putin and what... This entails both for an understanding of how we got to this point of crisis and where we could go feasibly into the future. Um, Before the break, we had just brought up um, the issue of Putin's wanting to take over the world, not, uh, which is clearly not true. Um, But though we hear about this every time we listen to the mainstream media, uh, Putin made a good, interesting point that when you appreciate the the deeper historical dynamics shaping the thing the 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 current nations and the the national identities we realize that it's not so clear cut as looking on a map as some think tankers would have it and that you know if you think about it Poland Hungary um have a certain reason to have some form of claim even on on different sections of Ukraine if they so wanted to have that conversation he's completely open to it um, which is not exactly the type of approach you would think for somebody who wanted to take over all of Europe like a new Nazi uh, Soviet, you know, uh, fascist, as we've been told he is. So uh, what are your thoughts on on that in a little bit more detail? Yeah, so there was at that point you're referring to is a, in the interview, he's talking about how um, he had was traveling through um, the very western part of Ukraine in the early 1980s, and he saw people. And he didn't know if they were like part of a performance troupe or if it was like a theater because they were like in these costumes. And he says, oh, these are. And the guy told him that he was with it. These are no, these are ethnic Hungarians, he was ethnic Hungarians in the Soviet Union, like in, in Ukraine. And it's like, yes, it's like, oh, and there they were. They had preserved their you know language, their historical traditions, you know, music, food, you know, all these things that are just the tip of the iceberg of culture, of course. But um, the things that are visible to us, of course. But it's it's uh, it's profound. And he says, you know, um, you know, the way that the maps were kind of divided, you know, at the ends of multiple world wars in the 20th century, like haven't really left the way things, you know, would be, you know, let's say ideally. And um, or if you were to say that Hungarians should all be in a Hungarian state and so on and so forth. Right. And uh, these are historical lands of Hungarians. And uh, then and then Tucker kind of presses him, like, well, have you talked to Orban about this? And he's like, no, we've not never talked about it. We're just saying, like, this is something for people to consider. And I thought that was like another one of those, uh, you know, putting on blast, as they say, very similar to when he just kind of nonchalantly mentioned that they had been at war with with Poland for 13 years. And then he you know, immediately just moves on from there or continues the story. And you're going, wow, 13 years. And this was like, wow, okay, so then Romania, Poland, and Hungary have a claim in here as well. Like, this is very interesting. Um, And we've seen some signs both from the Poles and from the Hungarians. So one thing that people may not know already is that in this conflict, um, when Ukrainian soldiers of ethnic Hungarian descent have been captured by the Russian army, that they were not transferred back to Kiev. They were transferred back to Budapest. They were transferred to Hungary. Okay, so this is a very interesting, factual, important thing to understand about. These are the kind of things that happen that really kind of shape our underlying understanding of the real process underway. 
And um, so it could very well be that, I mean, what Putin is saying with that policy or what the Russians are saying with that policy, of course, like not every decision is made by Putin, right? It's a very complex society with compartmentalized and decision makers delegated authority. But what the Russians rather are saying with that is, you know, uh, we consider Hungary to be the proper sovereign over these people who they, they weren't kidnapped from Hungary. OK, these are Ukrainian citizens of Hungarian ethnicity that are from the regions in the very uh, west of Ukraine that are this, the certain pockets that are part of historical Hungary. So I think that's a very real possibility, although it would be hard to imagine Orban being allowed to accept that kind of territory within the rules of the EU and within the rules of NATO and all these things. So it almost confers that if that were to even happen, that you would have to look at how EU would respond to that, what that means for NATO or Hungary's role in NATO. And um, maybe it's kind of a backdoor for NATO to be like, OK, well, we are in some part of Ukraine. Right. But through Hungary, which is kind of has a strange status in a way, in a way similar uh, to Turkey as a NATO country. So it's a very, very strange thing developing that kind of opens up a number of possibilities whose kind of fully flowered outcomes we would really have to map out to understand like what the real impact mm -hmm. could be. But it is a super interesting question. Mm -hmm. Another another point that I was thinking about, and it seems like part of Tucker's assignment, and I, I, I highly value what was done. I think it was historic and, and paradigm changing. However, I do think that there are other intentions, as we've alluded to. Um, and I think, yeah, that little wink, wink, uh, nudge, nudge. A jab that Putin gave at the beginning of the interview. Good thing you didn't join the CIA, right? <laughs> that was brilliant. Um, but there was, I think, some of the feelers were, is there enough point of conjunction regarding uh, the common Christian Christianity of the West, of USA, God save America, and Russia, God save Mother Russia? Is Both nations are Christian. Is there something that could be sort of kindled on that basis in the minds of the Russians? And I know I've heard Putin describe how there is something viable and good in Western civilization and Christianity that uh, they want to talk to. But I've also heard him say that there's a very different, unfortunate, slightly more sulfuric smell within the thing called a or much of many of the things called calling themselves Western Christian culture and all of its different splintered uh, expressions. What is your view of of the two different approaches to Christianity currently at play between what we're seeing in Russia um, and what we're seeing predominantly among the Western countries of the transatlantic. Yeah, in many ways. And I, I'm, I'm only parroting or echoing um, the views of people before me who have said this far, far more eloquently and far more succinctly. Um, but in a way, there are two Wests. There are two different Wests. There is the West of post-modernity, of hyper-materialism, of transhumanism and in many way the other west was the first victim of this new west so in many ways it was actually mm. europe and the united states that are the first victims to this kind of post-modernity or mm. ultra technological sort of um you should say 
uh, placing the interest of production or placing the interest of the system over the interest of human beings. Uh, in the old kind of uh, uh, epic, we might have said a system that puts profits before people, right? And that that the the West in this other iteration, uh, the tradition, uh, Christian, uh, classical civilization, uh, the Renaissance, that that this is a different West that has actually been the first victim of some other kind of entity, uh, mode of production, uh, societal form that has kind of invaded uh, and, and that the technology has invaded uh, and these new forms of rule and very bad ideas about humanity, very bad ideas about why we're here and what sort of ways to manipulate human nature towards short-term goals that, that I think that when Putin is talking about the possibility of a rapprochement with the West, this requires a type of civilizational uh, paradigm shift with regard to a revaluation of these kind of dead end and nihilistic values that this new West has arrived at. And so there's a there's another West in there. And we see it within many different counter hegemonic movements in Germany, in France, in Spain, Italy, United States. I mean, this is something that we see every day. It takes the form of labor conflict, a small business owner saying we're not going to pay these taxes anymore and the Green New Deal and the entire hoax of global warming. So these are all deeply interconnected things where it looks like this kind of second form of West, which kind of predatorized the old West, this original classical civilizational form of the West based in Christian ideas and, hum and humanism as well. We can't forget that this is something that needs to be looked at again. And there are we have to really put the brakes on this project. It, this is not just a project that has led to the you know GMOs and poisoning our food, poisoning our water, experimental gene therapies, quasi-genocidal policies, of course, this and that. This is something that can also lead this kind of moribund civilization directly onto a totally insane head-on collision with Russia or with China for no other reason than this kind of self-delusion that it's in. There, this is like Don Quixote tilting at windmills here. You know, there, there's no dragon there, you know, and, and Lucia is a prostitute. And this is the thing that, you know, this is the thing that the West needs to understand. And um, I think that uh, we have hope and we have opportunity. And the fact that this interview got 200 million views in just three days or two days is a huge sign of that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, in the last couple of minutes here, and I'm going to throw a big one at you philosophically, and, and we only have about two and a half minutes or so to address it, but I'm going to see what you can do with this. Putin was asked by Tucker, um, with AI, genetic technology, um, obviously we see the the scariness of it. Is he afraid of these things? And now Putin's response was, it's kind of like gunpowder. You, you can't stop gunpowder when it's about to come on as a technology. But the question is, uh, can it be used um, in, a, in, a, in a way which is which is tied to some moral uh, outlook instead of it being tied to empire? Do you think that's a naive response or way of thinking? Or do you think AI, genetic tech and other other things associated with the fourth industrial revolution are intrinsically bad, as as many people believe? Or can they actually be used for the good in a in a under a Christian Christian humanist um, ethic. Two Guns minutes, don't sorry. kill people. Guns don't kill people. 
people kill people. All right. So it is exactly in answer to that question. Uh, yes. Right. We, it, it is the culture and it is the intention and the belief system and all of this, these superstructural phenomenon that really actually formed the foundation of the base, not the other way around as the Marxists might think. And that this is something that we have to understand and that technology is not the enemy. OK, the enemy of man is the enemy. Terrible ideas that come from the enemy of man, whatever that is to you, is the enemy. But technology is not the enemy. And, and in every technology, there are different forms of a society that can be built on the same technology. And the type of technologies that we develop, you tech, there's not just one technology. There are different technologies that we can develop, and some are more productive, and some are more about implementing human discoveries, and yet others are totally bent on coercive technologies. So technology isn't just one thing. There are, there are also some dangerous technologies, but technology as a, as a subject, even artificial intelligence, this is not in and it of itself a problem. It's who's in charge and what ideas are ruling those in charge. Amen. Very well said, Joaquin Flores. If people want to reach you and follow your work, where do they go? New Resistance on Telegram is the best way. Also, I'm on Twitter now as Joaquin Flores with an X. X-O-A-Q-U-I-N-F-L-O-R-E-S on Twitter, X. Okay, fantastic. We're going to go for a short break. We're going to come back for our next segment with Michelle Chusadovsky.